Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in bodywork, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. It was such a pleasure to be in conversation today with Mark Johnson. Mark is the Philip H. Knight Professor of Liberal Arts and Sciences, Emeritus, in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Oregon. His research is focused on the philosophical implications of the role of human embodiment in meaning, conceptualization, reasoning, values, and knowing, especially from the perspective of embodied cognitive science and pragmatist philosophy. His recent work develops a naturalistic account of mind and knowing. He is co-author with George Lakoff of Metaphors We Live By and Philosophy in the Flesh, and author of The Body in the Mind, The Bodily Basis of Meaning, Imagination, and Reason, and many more wonderful books to read. In today's conversation, we spoke about what brought Professor Johnson to this field, metaphors as a foundation of how people view their world and define meaning, dualism of mind-body, cultural ontologies, non-absolutism, embodiment and awareness, world structuring, and so much more. Uh, Just a little note in the beginning, I had some technical difficulties before we really got started, and you'll hear me come into the conversation a bit abruptly because of that, and I apologize for that. Anyways, with that, let's begin our talk. Hello? I'm back. Okay, I'm back too. (laughs) What about Andrew? Is he coming? I think he's working his way through. But I'm really excited about our conversation. I know Andrew is, he, I have heard of you through him. Mm -hmm. And I've been taking, excuse me, a deep dive in your YouTube videos, some of the YouTube videos out there. Yeah. And Um, um, Yeah, you know, so I didn't know how much of a contribution I could make. Um, You know, I, because I don't actually integrate with any particular body work you know i'm my work has been about the role of the body and and meaning and value and that sort of thing and um i saw i'm i'm sure there are some connections but i haven't been connected up with the practitioners you know uh um although i i talk to people you know like you talk about movement and um, a lot of my work has to do with perceptual structure and bodily movement and that sort of thing. But it's mostly how it underlies meaning making in human beings. So well, um, maybe that'll be I hope I hope we can make some interesting connections for people. You know what? I think we can, because that's a little bit of kind of a hot topic that I'm that I'm exploring right now with how to to help change people's movement coordination Uh working beyond just from a biomechanical model or corrective exercises because a lot of times it can be more disruption in their perception and thinking of and a lot of times with in body work and especially if you're coming to coming to receive body work from a chief complaint pain or something kind of more trauma we get kind of identified with that story and 
in a way, you know, I see. It's yeah. the, you know getting identified that does have a, a serving mechanism. It makes uh-huh. us feel safe. Uh-huh. We can have a conversation around it. But then when you get held into it, then then you're losing the potential of being something more. Right. And um, yeah. so that's something that I play a lot with with people who are seeking some well some changes because we yeah. can do work with the soft tissue. We can present corrective exercises and then things still aren't changing. But when you start thinking of yourself, like if you have a shoulder pain and how your arm moves, if you start to think that your arm is more than what you physically see, Uh it's more than its anatomical parts, there's greater movement potential. Uh I'm very excited to learn more of what you have to say, because in my research on you, I have to say it feels quite dense. It's like a lot to take in. Yeah. And but I hear like these little nuggets of how it can be applied in terms of helping people move more efficiently and uh-huh. and working with you I think and again I've just taken a little bit of deep dive in your work but you're talking about imaginations and metaphors yeah. which is kind of you know lines up a little bit in terms of working with someone's perception. Yeah. 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 I mean, so if, if I can share a little bit of uh, yeah. that, that may help in this. I'll let you take the lead on what you're interested in. You know, that's what I was well, talking good. about. How, how is my yeah. work really going yeah. to integrate, um, you know, with body work well, practice perfect. and all of that sort of thing. And um, yeah. I can talk about what I've been working on, what I, what I think I know something about, but um, you can direct the, well, let, let me station in ways that yeah. can be more productive for you for your um, sure people so, interest. Yeah, let let me direct right now if that's all okay. right. <laughs> Which is say so. I I actually got really excited. One of our there's a, a lady in Brazil who who wrote her thesis on her PhD partly on uh, metaphors we live by. Oh. Which which interestingly I had found unrelated to that. And so I took her class because I said, this is going to be great. We're going to deal with this, this thing of, of what I'm working with. And uh, unfortunately, as Nikki, I kind of mentioned, the density was too much for some yeah. people. Yeah. It was too much for some people. And so, and they said, well, we don't want philosophy. We just want to move. And I was saying, no, you, you actually need this. Uh-huh. You, need this you need this background. Um, and I, I, you know, after I finished Metaphor as We Live By, I proceeded to recommend it out to to everyone I knew. In fact, I just gave it to my sister-in-law for Thanksgiving because she's a lawyer. <laughs> well, she's a lawyer. And I said, if you really love the English language, yeah. uh, it was it was so influential on me. And it was so influential uh, as a body worker, I thought, because when we start to talk about um, working with the body is not just a physical being. And, you know, and, and I've read right. other books of yours and you start right. to go into yes. the body mind stuff yeah. you're saying, okay, well, how can, if I want to evoke change in my client, first of all, understanding what I'm actually saying is really important so that they can also, you know, uh, understand. And so just, just firstly, looking at the role of metaphors, especially structural metaphors mm-hmm. on how that, how that affects us as as human beings going through the okay. day yeah. um that was that was just in some ways really uh as si- as silly as it sounds really mind-blowing to start to look at even that right there mind-blowing metaphor yeah. like no. looking at how everything i mean it's metaphor. true when we were working on this we had such a lovely time george lakoff and i 
um, because it's like it's things started to click for us. You know, it began to make sense of certain things we'd been working on but hadn't quite come together. And so that was an exciting time. That was a long time ago. <laughs> that was 1979 when I met George. Um, yeah, it was, it was, know. it was before I was born. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, George and I had, had just had a wonderful time writing that stuff and it, it opened up all these other paths, uh, especially the embodiment dimension, which we can talk about. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in that. And, 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 uh, I'm also really, I'm interested in, um, I guess first of all, like how did how did you and and George how did you come how, how did the talk become what what I guess you know we like to always start with the history because I find it so interesting yeah. to see what has brought people to where they are. So if you yeah, could share just yeah. a little bit about that, yeah. Now, so I I have to be careful not to give too much of a story here, um, but um, I was trained in uh, in philosophy. And Georgian lingu famous linguist. So, um, and and my training was what's called analytic philosophy. And and the basic idea was that um, all thought and meaning is mediated by language. And and so, if you want to understand how thought works and um, how we reason and conceptualize, then you want to analyze language. Well. That's not a bad view. I mean, that, there's a lot of insight in that. But um, what happened was people were buying into a dualism, basically, of mind versus body. And so their job was, you know, they weren't that interested in the body. <laughs> they were interested in oh, whatever they called mind and what are concepts and we think with propositions. Um, and all of that, I had to learn that, but it never quite clicked with me. And, you know, and I end up do, doing a doctoral dissertation on metaphor and it was a kind of odd thing for some philosopher to be doing because no one was really talking about it back then. And so my second year as a new assistant professor, I got invited out to Berkeley um, as a visiting professor. And um, the second day I was out there, I, I mean, I, I was doing this book on metaphor, on, on philosophers' treatments of metaphor, and I wanted to... Uh, a linguist to write something for it. And so I had been told about George Lakoff and I called him up um, and he said, I'm going out for coffee. Let's meet. And immediately we hit it off because we we both shared this one idea. That is, we felt that metaphor was absolutely foundational to how people understand their world. It was not a poetic, merely a poetic device or a rhetorical flourish, but was at the very heart of our ability to, to think, to reason, to, to find meaning in our lives and, um, um, you know, to, to extend knowledge. And so we decided we'd write a book together. And um, I said, George, I don't know anything about linguistics. He said, well, I do, and I'll teach you. <laughs> That's the kind of guy I was. Um, and um, so we started meeting um, regularly, and this stuff just we we were looking at how metaphor structures human understanding across cultures, you know, um, and it just exploded for us. I've never had so much fun in my life as you know working on that project. Um, so 
what that led to, though, was I don't we can talk about the details about metaphor, but it led to also an interest in the body because we started seeing that traditional views still held on to the mind body split as though that was there were two kinds of things bodily processes and perception, and then mind that was reasoning and emotion is with the body, and then ne the, never the twain shall meet, basically. Um, and it was really that bad, I think, in, in philosophy, um, because um, people just wanted to analyze propositions and concepts and things like that. Um, so we started to take seriously embodiment. Um, I, and we wrote this book, Metaphors We Live By. We, I, I was out there from in Berkeley from January till the 1st of July, so six months. And we wrote that book in a period of about um, two months, um, you know, like 14, six, 16 hours a day. Um, and when we were through, we realized that we had just begun to glimpse the role of the body and in human meaning. And so that became kind of a basis for the direction he went off in his work and then, and then my work. And then we got back together and wrote Philosophy in the Flesh, which is our big summary book of what role the body plays in human thought, in human meaning, and in values. Um, and so once George and I met each other, we were talking all the time over the phone, sharing ideas and, you know, writing together. It was it, it has been a wonderful experience for me and just opened me up. And it was George who said, you know, we can't just sit in the armchair and talk about body and, um, you know, meaning and value. Um, we have to look at some of the science of this. Um, so he first was the person to nudge me into taking cognitive science seriously. Um, and later, he was the first person to nudge me into taking neuroscience seriously. So th that kind of and and my work took off from that early work on metaphor because we saw that metaphors were grounded in aspects of body experience, like moving your body in space or perceiving things or eating, um, walking, things like that. Um, and so we 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 asked, well. If you don't have if body, mind and body aren't separate, two separate things, how do you ever get abstract concepts, you know, out of embodiment, stuff that seems to be concrete? You know, how, how is thinking possible? That sort of thing. And so I've been focusing on the role of the body and meaning and values for the last 30 years, I guess I would say. Well, that's that's great. And, uh, you know, because I had the technical difficulties, I don't know if Nikki went over this first. So if I repeat myself, I apologize. But there's a there's a sort of branch of what we're both Rolfers or structural. Yes. There's a branch of Rolf movement that looks at a lot of what you're saying, which is also one of the reasons I wanted to have you on Uh to also share this information with other people. Obviously, the books are great. I haven't read the the, the uh, philosophy in the flesh. I'm reading. Uh, no one has actually. It's too okay. long. I, it's, <laughs> it's a good doorstop. It's like 600 yeah. pages long. But anyway. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm reading. I'm reading the uh, one of your other books right now, which name? Which is about the mind. Mind body, body. and the mind. Body and the mind, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it it's, it goes hand in hand uh, with a lot of what what we do and what actually one of the things I do like about it I'll say is I find it's actually 
while it might be dense in some ways, it's not, it's, it's a nice place between academic and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. not, yeah. and not. So like academic is very dense and I read academic pages and I think I don't understand anything. And yeah. this, 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 this is great. It gives me information. I find it really helpful. Um, and also just about metaphors we live by when you said how you had a lot of fun with it, I would say that when I was reading it, that's how it felt. It felt like the both of you really enjoyed what you were doing. You yeah. were passionate about it. And so it came, it comes through. Um, uh, you know, George, George would say what we're on, what the metaphor for what we're doing is the voyage of discovery <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> that's the <laughs> rhetoric. And we, we always wanted to write for a general educated audience. Um, and, you know, we wanted to try to keep the technical jargon down. Um, and you may think some people may think there's too much technical jargon in metaphor, metaphors we live by, but I don't think, I mean, compared to, like you said, other academic work, um, we actually got criticized by people saying, oh, this can't be any good because it doesn't have footnotes. <laughs> you know, I mean, so locked into a certain way of yeah. doing things, you yeah. know, but it was, yeah. it, it was, I stress the Voyager discovery metaphor because it was what was it fun and exciting was that it was helping us understand ourselves, you know, mm -hmm. how we think, how mm -hmm. we find meaning and that sort of thing. And so it was um, it was an adventure. And the idea was, how could you share that adventure? Well, you try to show people, um, you know, give examples, rich examples of how these metaphors structure our understanding all the way down. And what and how we think in terms of them. Um, yeah, so. I'm actually I'm actually doing a talk uh, in a week and a half uh, about non-duality, and I'm oh. and I'm using a bunch of I mean I'm bringing in metaphors as a part of that as meta um, as I find metaphors are a great way of 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 getting uh, working in and around it because of course that, yeah. non-duality is something we can't cognitively <laughs> explain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, which makes me want, I mean, you know, I am a little curious. Uh, my background, my background is actually in technology and uh, uh -huh. IT, but I, I studied philosophy uh, uh, not quite academically. And in the last few years, I've gotten much more into uh, existentialism, phenomenology. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, postmodernism, yeah. deconstructionism, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Actually, the very first person I did a Rolfing 10 series on was a professor of philosophy. And he said, what you're doing is my work embodied. Who is that? Uh, his name is uh, um, Kurt, uh, Kurt Myrtle. He is in, he actually teaches in Dubai. He's helping to oh, really actually. Oh, I don't know him. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, later on, if you're interested, I, <laughs> we can connect you. But um He's he's really really interesting and and that wording from him made me say okay there's probably something more of this work which then sort of pushed me into doors and also through through his help he you know I might say something he said oh, if you like that you know check this out yes. um, he yeah. even gave me he gave me the compliment once saying that I was sounding very Heideggerian which I thought uh -huh. was both a compliment and maybe not yeah go either way but yeah I'd love to I'd love to hear a bit about you know for you uh talking about the the dualism uh yeah of okay. the mind body if, if that's comfortable uh, oh yeah I find let, that the, let me yeah let me say a little bit about yeah. that because like right now I'm teaching what may be the last seminar I ever teach because I'm on this retirement track 
and it's on pragmatism and cognitive and and cognitive science. Um, but it's all built around how do you have a naturalistic, non-dualistic account of human being? That and it's it. I I want to start by saying that the mind-body dualism is so deeply inscribed in Western culture. Um, it's in the language. Um, it's in our institutions, institutional practices. Um, it's a kind of taken for granted. And if, if but if you, if you're like me, you think that humans are complex animals, biological and social. I mean, social organisms. You have to explain meaning from the bottom up. Um, and it's so it's a radical claim. If you think about it, um, you know, in the past, people wanted to talk about concepts. Well, where are concepts? Oh, they're in your mind. Well, where's your mind? Ah, well, uh, anyway, I guess it's connected to your brain somehow. But, I, you know, they didn't have any any idea how how that might be. Um, so but and because they didn't go there, they're they're able to they're the entire philosophy is grounded from the beginning in a fundamental dualism. But if you start with the fact that what, and, and this this I got from John Dewey. I mean, I'm a big fan of John Dewey, American pragmatist philosopher, um, William James, another pragmatist. And they both profoundly understood how meaning is rooted in our bodily engagement with the world. So let me give you, an, and I'll give you an example of that. Um, and the, here's the problem. The problem is if you're if you want to give get rid of the dualism, um, then you you have to explain how all of us these marvelous human capacities could emerge out of our engagement with an environment. So Dewey starts with and everything starts with an organism interacting in ongoing fashion with an environment, and any meaning or values has to come out of that interaction. Now, the environment is physical. It's also interpersonal environment. It's a social and cultural environment. So this isn't a reductivist view. Um, so here's an example. Um, I've got a, 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 a video I show when I'm giving talks sometimes of my granddaughter, Sophia. And she's, she's you know, in her crib. And she's just all this action. Her arms are flailing and her feet are flailing and they're slapping down on the crib and all. It's just this beautiful upsurge of energy and uh, emotion and movement. It's all about movement. And if you look at that, you can see. And then I've got another video of a few months later when she's actually learning to walk. And if you, and I use the notion of, of James Gibson, the psych, perceptual psychologist, it's, uh, it's called an affordance. And that is that your world affords you, your environment affords you possibilities for acting with it. And so little human beings are learning the affordances of their world through their body. So they learn that certain things can be walked on, <laughs> certain things can be sat on, certain things can be manipulated. And and our claim is that out of all of those sensory and and motor and you know movement and manipulation activities of of the human body, um, 
all the thought and meaning that is available to us emerges. Um, and, and that this never stops throughout life, you know? Um, so I start with the assumption that we that a human being is, uh, a, requires, uh, a body that's functionally engaging an environment, a brain that is engaged with a body, which is engaged with an environment and an environment, which is rich, it's social, it's, um, uh, cultural, um, and it's also physical. And so think about a, a child learning to, they're, they're playing with, uh, with containers and they put an object in a container and they put another container inside something else. And, um, you know, you don't have to get them a fancy schmancy, um, you know, uh, toy from the best toy store. They just go on and get the pots and pans out and they're doing this. And what they're learning is containment, what I call the logic of containment. They're learning from the bottom up that one thing can be fit within something else, can be fit within something else. Um, and that is, that's an embodied engagement with, there's a technical term and logic for this. We don't need to, you know, um, but where one thing is within another thing and another thing, that, that's a pattern of logic. And I'm saying that even young children are learn are beginning to learn how things can relate to one another through their bodily and you know action with the world. Um, and so I, I introduced along with George Lakoff in 1987 with that book, Body and the Mind, um, the idea of an image schema. And these are things like um, there are two different types. One is like containment is a good example. Another one would be um, degree of intensity. So like you turn up a rheostat on the light and you have this experience of, you know, uh, the light coming up or I get loud, you know, you have that, that, that surge experience. And, you know, um, Daniel Stern, who's a, a child psychologist, I mean, he's not alive anymore, but he famously looked at the way in, he called these affect contours. That in, infants learn their world through um, these pulses of feeling, you know, that that structure their experience. And so, all, a lot of that goes together in forming up a little human being who is learning the affordances of her environment um, and having to build meaning out of that. So, um, that's the challenge. Um, is to show how, and there aren't just spatial schemas. There are also force schemas. Like you have the experience of being pushed along by a force that's overwhelming. Um, And you have experience of being attracted, you know, to something. You have um, the experience of being blocked in your action and frustrated in your action. Those bodily experiences, we call these various kinds of of force schemas, and those become a basis for meaning for children too. So it's kind of a body, it's an body up, um, a bottom up experience um, of a, a, and notice it's, it's not, we are not our brain. We're not our body, I wanna say. We're not our environment. We're all of those things in interaction. We're a brain and a body and an environment and ongoing interaction that is generating values, um, 
and significance, you know, meaning uh, for what what we're experiencing and what it can do, how we can interact with it, that sort of thing. Um, so that's the yeah. that's the, yeah. the general account of starting with the bottom and moving up. Well, and I think I mean it's 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 great to have this conversation because you know as Andrew and I mentioned some of the material that you can presented seems can be so dense and and it's it's yeah. great to hear kind of kind of the logic behind it but if we really kind of step out of like why you know the great big meaning and just yes. looking at human development and meaning you can think of like I I have two kids and why after I birthed my first one, um, second one was a C-section, so things operated a little differently. But the first one, after after pulling him out, he started nudging up my belly yeah. to find my breast for breastfeeding. Like we, I was a meaningful person to him. Yes, it is affordance. Along, a a very important affordance for for him. Yes. Yeah. And then when you continue to look at like how we, our movement evolution is start to roll over because yeah, they're yes. searching for where the primary parent is. And then yeah. starting once they like come onto their hands and knees, they're reaching for something of desire. And all this, you know, just a recent um, movement study group that I'm in, we we're talking about how arms are these great, you know, gestures they have so much meaning and it comes from before we are walking and able to really go for what we're looking for we were already grasping and like yes. the way the arms are like the way the fascial connection can weave into lungs heart space that this right, is right. A big extension and how there can be so much meaning to that and i think it's important too of when we work with people in their bodies and you know not everybody's like this. Some people really want to kind of enjoy the process and understand the meanings of how did they take on the shapes that they've taken on in their, their growth, whether it's, you know, most of the, most of the work is, I would say is into the more adult um, raw things, more structural integration uh-huh. predominantly is more in an adult um, clientele, not to say kids definitely can benefit from it. But and again, if we kind of come back to it, like, Kids get to enjoy a meaningful life without all these extra burdens of like how you should be or be in some occupational position. Maybe we're getting challenged that a little bit with, you know, them having to sit in their school desk and yes. sit down and learn. But um, but coming back to the place of not to have some compassion to the meaning that brought you into a position, whether it's not the most favorable position, there was a meaning to it and it was serving. It was a mean, yes, yes. Otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. Yeah. And then to honor whatever that meaning is and then no longer have to live with it. So it's stuck in your body that you can yeah. then start to shed what's no longer useful and take on other purposeful meaning. Right. Yeah. Life. So, you know, John Dewey, I said is my philosophical hero. Um, John Dewey explained this in terms of habits, um, and and habit not is not a bad thing. I mean d- that that our like our bodily experiences generate affordances for us 
And so we develop habits, habits of movement, um, habits of standing. He uses an example from the Alexander technique, actually. Um, he knew Alexander. I don't know. Are you familiar with the, that body technique? Um, yeah, there. in some ways, there's a relation. There's a, they're, they're different, but we're, we're related in some ways with right them. Too. And so um, Dewey pointed out that, look, a human being, he says, is a, he called it an inner penetration of habits, habits of your bodily comportment, habits of thinking, habits of valuing, you know. Um, and the question becomes, and this is a big neuroscience issue, if, if all these habits get, you know, rigidified, you know, how do you how do you break through that? How do you come to how do you reorganize so as to open up new possibilities for thinking, for being, for valuing, you know? Um, and do we had an answer you know, to that about how habits could be more flexible? You know, he, he didn't have the neuroscience details of that. But um, so these these patterns that we learn are meaningful habits to us, but also they, they can operate beneath the level of conscious awareness to sort of structure our world and, you know, just what stands forth for us. And um, we can lose sight of the work they're doing for, for better or worse. You know, it's not all good, <laughs> the habits that we develop, of course. Um, yeah. So um, the, the, Dewey would say, look, if you want to, um, if you're having posture issues, it's not going to work to say, stand up straight. What do you have to do? You have to affect your way of interacting with the environment. So you have, you have to build up certain muscle groups. You have to, um, you have to engage in certain kinds of exercises whereby the body takes on a certain posture, not that you will it into to being, um, but by altering your environment and the way the body engages the environment, you open up new possibilities. That, you know. And there we go back to like what what meaning is, because mm -hmm. while there is yeah. that, you know, or what we're talking about is orienting your environment. Some people, their environment doesn't feel safe to them, and that's how they are building up their posture yeah. or. Yeah, or maybe exactly. it's not even their external environment. Something in their internal environment doesn't feel safe to be yes. upright and yes. very present into the world. And, and open, yeah. Well, and there's more. There's also that when you say about meaning, who's meaning? How? I mean, this is what I'd say Foucault really uh, inspired me of is looking at. Well, the meaning that I have right now is just because it's the meaning I've learned based yeah. on various powers that came to be. Various that said, structures of power exa relationships. Exactly. Exactly expectancies and possibilities and yeah. limitations and yeah yeah and so when you speak about posture i i teach a class on posture and it's basically about throw everything you were taught about posture out the window because uh -huh. that's that's just one structural ideology of what good posture is but it's 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 a picture it's an idea it's it's a concept that may not actually fit with your embodied uh, presence your embodied uh -huh. being in that and so it's actually the class is all about uh we almost never we don't really even talk about posture we do exercises we move in certain ways we, yes. we breathe and 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 you know 
And through that, and this is partly what my my talk is going to be on, which is not about posture, but it's, it's sort of what you were saying. How do you affect these these patterns or these habits, know. right? The habits are essentially, I would say, ha habits are just patterns that are they, in the same. That's right. That's right, exactly right. right. That's the doing and, idea. Yeah. Right. And so how do you affect it? Well, my, my talk's all about this, which is really perfect that we're having this talk now, which is to say the the two main ways that I found to be really helpful. One is, uh, uh, well, first of all, I say that we can never really see outside the box because anything we see is within our box, right? Mm -hmm. So the only way we can see outside our box is by an input inwards or a way that we change the structure of the box. Mm -hmm. So that's why coming to see someone like Nikki or I or someone coming to talk to you, Mark, and saying, okay, and that by being interacting with the environment in a different way, but just to say, having input in, which um, which therapy can do, but I would say dialogue is, yeah, is, yeah. is part of it. The other way I find uh, what I'll, I'll call is meditation, um, but walking in nature could be seen for the same way where yes. you are. And, and it's partly, it's about, well, when you look at meditation, what meditation from an Eastern perspective is saying is essentially uh, it's more than mindfulness. It's about being without mind, being without cognitive thought. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and it's in those. I, I mean, you know, that that's yeah. a controversial issue about, I mean, um, let me say one thing about meaning though, Please. relative to this. Um, so the pragmatist view of meaning um, that, it makes sense to me is the meaning of something is what it affords you by way of possible actions and relations and experiences that you have. And so, and your experiences can be past experiences, the present context, or it can be projections into the future. But mean the meaning is, ab is, is about what experiences are afforded by something. And so um, when Nikki was talking, if you're if you're feeling unstable or frightened, you know, um, then your world affords you a kind of it's fearful. Actually, it's threatening to you. It's not just that you feel threatened. Your whole world, you know, threatens you might. It's you might it's un, it's unsafe, you might it's say. It's unsafe. And you and, and you feel that and, and, and the body postures um, take, you know, take that on themselves. Um, so I, I see meaning as um, as the enactment or evocation of um, experiences, the meaning of something or the experiences that it can afford you. Um, and those can be, you know, in terms of bodily movement or um, manipulation of objects or things, but it can also be um, habits of thinking, you know, of conceptualizing or how one, you know, looks at a problem or what one's values are. I think that's really a big area where we, we start to talk about morality as a bunch of habits that have become ingrained. And um, sometimes, the, our situation has changed so that the we no longer have the same conditions that we had when that cluster of meanings was first developed, you know, first came into being. Um, and, and so we need to find ways to transform our moral understanding that's more, you know, um, appropriate for the 
the the complexity of the situation we find ourselves in. Um, yeah. Anyway, so it's um, it, I I think the word meaning is important. Meaning can be therefore part of it is cultural affordances that are projected, but some of it is you might think has to do with individual development, you know, and growth and the way that you you have come to um, embody certain meanings. Um, what, 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 yeah. yeah, which I think, uh, so just to give you a little information about me, I um, I was a nomad for about 12 years. I traveled all over the world and, and just worked in different places. And I didn't realize it at the time, but later on, uh, I realized how I was learning culture and I was learning oh, cultures yeah, in different absolutely, ways. Yeah. Absolutely. And how that culture pervades, yeah. uh, per- culture completely pervades meaning. My, my wife is from mainland China. I'm from America. It's amazing how the same object can mean something it's entirely, something, uh, entirely see. different. Yeah. Um, uh, I wish it wasn't so. It would make my marriage a little easier, but yeah. but it makes <laughs> it makes my life it makes my life more rich. And so that the culture does pervade, and and culture can be. I mean, culture is. I'm in Boston. You're, Nikki's in Boulder. You're you're yeah. in Eugene. In the West in Eugene. Yeah. We have three micro culture that's right of a, of a macro yeah and even even in eugene you will have micro cultures and all of these cultures are uh uh um, affecting our our worldview and our worldview is affecting how we relate as you mentioned before about the world around us how are we and this human being is not just a mind or a body it's in relation to the world as it's taking through the meaning that's exactly, exactly. Yeah. that's exactly yeah. right I, and let me pause for a minute i want to give an example because we we talked about metaphor but it, we haven't talked about a single metaphor really i mean except the voyage of discovery and and maybe i can give an example here because it's a question about uh, are there any universal metaphors um and george lakoff and i um worked on um metaphors for our more moral understanding what kind of metaphors are operative and I, I wanted to give you one example um it's a big one and that is um you know humanity is a family that's a metaphor um they're not literally your family um so you're using your experience of familial relationships to understand broad-based the global, um, community and, and, and universalize it to all humanity. Um, and so um, you could say, here's where culture, the culture comes into play. So if, if you, if you say that you have a family, you start with a fam, a model of the family, well, those are going to be culturally different perhaps. So here's an example. Lakoff and I worked up the idea of a, strict parent family, all right? So that's a family in which usually the father, sometimes the mother, is the authority figure. And they're supposed to know what's good for you, and they impose that on you that, and, and, in a sort of authoritarian way. Your job is to develop um, understanding of, of that why that's right and to develop the strength, the willpower to do it. And so it's a strict father. We called it strict father morality. There, there are like there are absolute things are bound. You know, they could be moral principles or absolute va- moral values. 
And and your job is to grow up and conform to those. And at some point, it, it ceases to be your father's morality and it becomes your morality. You incorporate the, the strict father morality. But that, that's only one family model. But and you can go through cultures around the world and see in, in some like Christian theological frameworks, you have real strict father morality. God is the ultimate father, you know, who issues in commandments, you know, and issues punishments and rewards and that sort of thing. But then there's the nurturant parent morality. And this is tied like to notions of attachment theory in, in psychology. So in a nurturant in, in a nurturant parent, the key notion is care and responsibility for the children. And in the metaphor of the family, you know, the um, uh, the the family of man, as it used to be called, in that metaphor, children maps on to adults. And so um, strict nurturant father or nurturant parent morality is about care, about taking responsibility for others. It's not so much about authority coming from the top down, but it's earned by the way you um, you care for someone. And so here's the point I wanted to make that you could think there's a kind of universal metaphor. It makes sense that it, it, it you you know since you learn morality usually at the beginning in a family context, you know it's acquired that way. It's not surprising that we have these family-based metaphors. But different cultures develop the strict father model or the nurtured parent model in different ways. So even though there's something that's universal, there are yet sometimes substantial cultural differences in how the metaphors get articulated. Okay, so that's a lot. But I wanted to, you know, it, it shows that there's both something shared across cultures and then there's also difference. And that's just what you'd expect to find. That's not unusual. Um, but so if you want to understand that culture, you've got a lot of work to do, you know, because, you know, if you're if you're operating, you know, and George Lakoff extended this to political views, conservatives and liberals and all and the difficulties of trying to talk to one another. I mean, if people are working with these different fundamental metaphors um, they're going to be at cross purposes, butting heads all the time or, or moving past each other without really engaging. Um, OK, so I stopped there. <laughs> well, I think that's I mean, it's I think in some ways we've been doing that since the very beginning of time. Yes. I mean, my husband is an archaeologist and ah. he has abundance of books on rock art. And while some images have some universal meaning, yeah. others There's or more reflective of the tribe and where they are in, in, on in the that, planet. Yes. How their drawing is depicting, you know, how the stars are aligned in that part of the hemisphere versus another part. And, you know, right. they're drawing based of what's meaningful in their, in their life. Yeah. So that, but, and I, I just wanted to emphasize <clears throat> there's, there's something that's shared um, you know, or we couldn't understand them at all. But but the way it gets articulated in a different cultural or group setting can, you know, that that creates diversity of, of view. And um, but 
I I personally don't believe that any you know there's a, some people like like this metaphor oh that people are infinitely other you know I can never know you but the fact is we have our embodiment and and certain patterns of engagement with our environment we, you're not completely foreign to me you know you're not an infinite other to me. Um, I can be in and with someone, I can understand them because I too was a child, was brought up, needed nurturance, um, engaged, found frustration, encountered frustration, made mistakes, that sort of thing. Well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna posit something here, and this might this might make sense, or it might be really foreign, and uh, we'll see, I guess, because um, you mentioned about that that knowing each other and embodiment. And what I've what I found as I've studied more about that, what we'll call it the embodied arts, but also about yes. philosophy, is that it's it's amazing how much I I can perceive to know about someone without even actually talking to them by just by observing ah. them, ah, yeah. observing how they breathe, how they move, ah, yeah, and and this this aspect that fills information and it ties in a bit of what you were saying before. I mean, it is. This is where I think the, the one of the, the the struggles with the body mind dualism, um, and and I don't want to blame Descartes too much because I think no, that he, okay. he, but he's he guilty. Was, you, well, he's, but he's, he's not. He, he, he it was guilty long before him. It was but, long before. And yeah, but and but he, he was made also, a big deal of it. Okay. He made a big deal, and he's a product of his time. You know, yes, he gonna, is. Um, we all are. But, yeah, we all are. And to say that there's so there's this perceptual awareness of of not. Uh, not mind, not top down, but of of bottom up of our body in relation with the world, essentially, exactly. essentially speaking. And yes. the sense, the senses can actually inform us more. And if we can spend more time, yes, the senses are coming up to a, a cognitive, but there is space between where we can, uh, I believe we can be before the mind labels it as so, but just in this yes. presence in the space that is actually informing us so that we can, we can know someone or maybe know is not the right word. Um, no, understand. We can I understand mean, in a certain way, but I mean, this is perfect because <clears throat> something we haven't talked about, but in my work, it's been, um, it's been um, driving me for many years. And that is that what we're talking about today are, are about the aesthetics of human being. The, you know, and, and I was trained to teach philosophy of art and, and philosophy of language. And, and um, you know, Dewey's view is that art is, is a manifestation of possibilities of meaning. Um, and that's why it's valuable, not just that it's entertainment or that it's representational or, or something like that. Um, and so I think these aspects of embodiment that we're talking about bring aesthetics to the forefront. And there are going to be different aesthetic, um, you know, understandings and styles of movement and interacting and standing, um, that kind of thing. So I want to bring aesthetics into this, too. Um, and say that aesthetics is, you know, people think, well, that's just a matter of taste, you know, and it's subjective. Well, it is a matter of taste, but it, I mean, um, human beings are meaning-making creatures. And I want to say that aesthetics is about how we make and experience meaning and values. And that's kind of stretching the term from its normal um, 
locust, but if you're talking about rock art, you know, there's a certain aesthetic manifestation there of possibilities for meaning. And, and we are, in a sense, artists of our lives. We're not, we're not, co we're not all in control. <laughs> we're kind of co-artists. Um, we have to work with what's given and what's possible for us and um, see how that can be developed. But it requires sensitivity and empathy and imagination. It's, you know, it seems it makes sense to me to talk about these. This is an aesthetic process. Yeah, yeah, it, it's something that that hits me, and this might be exactly online, or it might be might be off. So again, we'll see. Which is, there, there's something, especially with the empathy and the meaning, and yeah. this of um, I'm trying to find the right way to word it, but it's more or less of well, my main, my I think how do I say this? My meaning may not be accurate, <laughs> and and the more that we can actually al allow that, which I think uh, at least Western culture doesn't usually teach it teaches us to be correct to be right yeah, yeah, yeah. um and that as you know uh -huh. that's something that that i've been working with as i start to you know i come to something and say well i don't i don't like how this looks right but i don't say i don't like how it looks i would say this is ugly uh -huh. um yeah uh -huh. my wife my wife loves it <laughs> and yeah. so the more i can kind of say well i don't like how it looks or or, or to step back and say well could it could it be that my meaning is fallible uh, and allow a, a different perspective towards that. Um, uh, that's, yeah. Well, that, yeah, I mean, so yes, we're fundamentally fall fallible creatures. I mean, there's like, there's overwhelming evidence of that. So what do we have to do? What we ought to cultivate is the capacity for critical um, act, critical reflection and you know reconsideration. So the the only way to break out of that absolutism, and I, I haven't mentioned that word before, but it's to me it's one of the great problems. <laughs> thinking that you know that you know one there there's some absolute value. There's only one way to take this situation. I happen to know that way, <laughs> and you should listen to me. You know, I mean, it it completely cuts off communication. It co completely cuts off the opportunity for creative change and reconstruction of the situation we're dealing with. Um, it's it's a huge enemy of growth and uh, of um, you know more yeah. engagement. And and so I, I think you're right. Um, well, I, I do. I want to say that while no. you haven't said it, I would say in some way you have said it in a way. And you haven't said the exact words. But my understanding, once we start to talk about non-duality, non non-duality essentially says non-absolute, or yeah. as what I like to say, except for the absolute of non-absolute. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Right. But so, but but you know, I, I and I want to stress here, the idea is we we need to it's that yes, we are the product of all these habits that we've developed that have been in, you know pressed on us by society, the Foucaultian kind of analysis that you were talking about. But the thing is, change and transformation are possible. That, that, that's where the, one's faith needs to be, you know, that um, these habits are not so utterly fixed and entrenched 
that they can't be re reconstructed in the light of new conditions. And, and it's the failure to be able to do that or to thinking that, you know, so people who think, no, we already knew what, what was moral, what was right, you know, and no new conditions could cause us to rethink that. I mean, that's simply that it's like good night nurse, you know, there's no more, nothing to be said. You can't engage. It's like, we know the truth. Here's the truth. Rather than what what this is all about is is cultivating an aesthetics of reflection and engagement, um, and and so that that requires a recognition of like you said fallibility, um, and and the and and willingness to you know to to live in the space of indeterminacy. We're not very good at that. Where things aren't just one way or another, or fixed and clear and clarified, you know, to be able to dwell for a while. John Dewey said people take any crazy, you know, quick fix to get over the feeling of indeterminacy or the, and the anxiety that that oh, generates what? in our lives. Yeah, very much so. And, and very when you much do so. that, you just shut off the possibility for, um, you know, creative exchange and for growth. Yeah, there's there's a lot actually. What you said is how I see what what you know as as rolfers. First of all, the 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 answer to almost anything in rolfing in my training was always depends. There was never it, a really it, a direct rolfing. answer. Cool. Yeah. It was very much like, well, what is it? Well, it depends. And that that way of thinking, which I hated at first, I hated it. Has mm -hmm. has uh, in fact, my my answer to most things when my wife asks me a question is yes and no, and she hates uh -huh. that. She says, well, which is it? And I say, well, it really it's both. Um, and, you know, that it's one of the things I love about uh, about about the bodywork practices we do to go back to what you're saying is uh -huh. people people come in a lot of times strictly with a physiological issue that is limiting them. But that's also a pattern. They're stuck in a pattern yes. of movement. And that pattern of movement also has a reflective pattern of thought. It does. It, yeah, uh, absolutely. And so, and so we can work with them. But one of the things uh -huh. that, that the founder of Rolfing, Ida Rolf, had said was she said, we're not, she said, you're educators. And so a big part, I have some people who come in and I've told the story before, but I think you'll appreciate it. I had a client come in. I saw her. We worked. It was, she was very difficult. I couldn't quite do what I'd hoped to do. She came back again. We talked for 90 minutes. I didn't touch her at all. We talked for 90 minutes. She, uh, I later found out that she was a professor. She was very academic. And it was required that I needed to touch her. I needed to get oh, her oh, completely. To, 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 yeah. And, yeah. Once, and, and I said at the end, I'm sorry. I know you wanted to be touched, but I, I felt this was needed to give you what you needed. Um, but if you come back, I'm sure we can, you know, things. Will, she came back again. And everything was completely different. And she oh. agreed. She said, yeah, I needed that. She needed to let her safety, which was cognitive understanding. Understanding of that. Understanding of it. And then her body changed and everything shifted in, entirely. Um, and so the the edu the helping her was not just about let's dive into the tissue. Yes. Some of it was like, well, what's causing the tissue to not move? Yeah, yeah. In interesting. Yeah. 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 Oh, you know, I have this one little story. It's kind of like the opposite side of this. And that was um, years ago, a colleague and I, Nancy Tuana and I did a, a seminar on um, embodiment when this at the time when embodiment was becoming a big issue in philosophy. And um, 
so I had this graduate student who was really brilliant. And the first two weeks of do uh, meetings, we went over to the rec center and laid on the floor and, and a body movement practitioner took us through a series of experiences, you know, and we did that two hours and twice, you know, and, and I could see that this guy was just so uncomfortable. <laughs> and afterwards he comes up to say, say, what are we doing laying on the floor? You know, we're, we're, this is a seminar and embodiment. We're supposed to be thinking out the arguments for this. I mean, he was so, so anxious about, you know, he didn't, you know, about and feeling the body or it's so divorced from feeling what was going on. Oh, very, very that, much. And, so. and he was saying, we're, we're supposed to think as though thinking had nothing to do with, um, you know, his bodily way of being in the world. It has everything yeah. to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, I will sometimes say I found that some of my most challenging clients are psychologists. Oh. The ones who the ones who do not study necessarily about a body mind thing uh -huh, because uh -huh. everything everything is a projection of the mind of the world uh -huh. and so the it's literally Brains. like there's yeah yeah it's like everything beneath the neck is uh -huh. um, yeah, and I'm yeah. not and I and because I'm not able to cross that line there's there's there, nothing, not, not, oh, I see. nothing I can do yeah yeah, uh -huh. yeah until until there can be a shift yeah so I, I um. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Or I should say there's nothing I've learned at this point that I can do. You can do. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, you know, the whole um in the psychology in the 20 20th century went through a long period of, you know, like um cognitive psychology and you know, black box, you know, there was input and output, and you know, and no real sense of the body at all. It wasn't until um like Ulrich Neisser and and what they call ecological psychology, where they started talking about how the body engages its its world, you know, and how patterns of meaning and value yeah. emerge out of that. That's that actually was fairly late on in the late later part of the uh, in the latter part of the twentieth uh, century. Yeah, I think that's actually how I found you originally was reading David Abrams' book and David oh, no, Abrams. David. Yeah. yeah. He was an eco-psychologist. We, we worked together a lot years ago. I mean, we're, you know, we seem to be at every conference on, you know, at when embodiment came yeah. out and was a big thing. The Spell yeah. of the Sensuous was, yeah. was his Changing. big book then. Yep. Yeah, it changed my world. Um, I, I have an embodiment question for you, which is something I've been struggling with, which uh, well, I'd love to hear your take on it. Because I, I, I struggle with this word a bit because I think oh. about... I th well, I, I think about, okay, so if I'm, if somebody comes to see me and they have some limitations and then we do some work together or they see Nikki, whoever, or even if they talk to you and they change, they become more embodied. So previously, are they disembodied or are they, they're as embodied as they can be with what they have at that time? But, yes. is that, but does that mean they are embodied like, or... Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, I dealt with this issue before. So first off, um, the claim is, I mean, the fundamental assumption here is that body and mind are one. What they really are are different dimensions or aspects of an ongoing interactive process. Um, so there is, so everything is embodied for us, but that doesn't mean that we're aware of it. And able to take it up in a meaningful fashion, you know, it can be 
driving us, um, offering us certain possibilities, a world that we don't even critically or reflectively engage. And and um, so we are we're not experiencing the consummatory, you know, the possibilities there, I want to say, you know, so there is, there is a value judgment here that there's more out there for you. <laughs> okay. Um, but it, it's like, you can't, there's no disembodied thinking, at least so I claim. I mean, I, I would say, I, you know, uh, like I've said, I, I, you need at least a partially functioning brain and a partially functioning body, at least in, in ongoing interaction, not as a fixed, finalized thing, interaction with an environment. And so people can be more or less um, tuned into the possibilities of that. It's like, I want to say, like looking at and like experiencing a work of art. You know, some people say that, me. you know, they just, it just like, given that set of habits that have constructed their world, you, this, you gave this example, you know, maybe certain, um, you know, when I look at certain kinds of Asian art, um, I, you know, I, there's some things I resonate with and others not. Um, and so becoming aware and able to engage the actual rich, richness of affordances depends on what kinds of patterns of perception and, you know, how much openness there is, you know, so, and, and that sort it, of thing. So there so, is a value. Okay. So if there is, and this this might be the answer, uh, and and maybe I've uh, so if there is no disembodied state, would you say that there's also no fully embodied state, and that might be because there's yeah. no absolutes, right? So there's yeah, no yeah, right. and okay. and and change is the fundamental conditions are all we have to realize. It may be very minor, so it may not really make it be a change, but. We're all, we, you know, neuroscientists and and um, biologists and zoologists. We know that the body is always changing in ongoing interaction. When it stops doing that, it that's when you got a problem. You know, and, and we fall out of homeostasis. We fall out of balance. We fall out of what's called allostasis, which is the ability to create, you know, adapt to new conditions. And when we do that, it ultimately it's death, you know, but um, um, so there it's, it's a process of continual experience and growth. Mm. Um, and so it, you know, there's no finality until the organism stops interacting with its environment. Right, so right. Th there is right. no absolute it, because an absolute would be the final, the ultimate terminus toward which something has supposedly been working to find its full fulfillment. But no, fulfillment has to do with the affordances that emerge through your ongoing interaction. So you <laughs> never know what other things are out there, um, right? That that can be meaningful. So let, let me try this on. And so that I think the issue, the issue for me with embodiment is always that it is a not like it's relatively a non, it's a non-dual thing. It's and it's only it's only our ideas and our meaning that really label it. Yeah, but, yes, that's right. That is right. right. Yeah. Um, but that if we were, uh, how do I say this? The way that the embodiment is a perceptual, sensual thing, it has no actual 
value. The value is purely because once we have a value, we're, we're into the mind labeling it, which is just an idea or a concept. But the actual and actually an embodied being is preconceptual. It's and and the way that we can kind of recognize that is is the perception. So before mm. before we have the oh, the blah, 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 this value, there's just this presence. There's this um something that we sense before i may am i getting okay. yeah yeah right? but but um i just want to tune that a little bit please please um, that's what i'm looking for yeah so it's tricky but first off i want to say look the the fundamental value for an organism has to be what maintenance of the conditions for life right health something okay. towards health and, and and that's yeah and that so um and, and, could and we, that, would you agree yeah. that adaptability is a part of this as well? No, that, this is this is the crux of it. Learning, and this is what I the term allostasis is is the new term they're using now. That's the ability of the organism to uh, anticipate possible changes in its environment and be able to adapt to it, rather than falling just falling out of sync. So adaptability is as the crux of this whole process. And I just wanted to point out that we have certain values um, by being, by the fact that we're biological organisms. We need nurture, we need uh, a certain sugar gradient. We need salt or our brains won't work. We, if our temperature gets too hot or too cold, we die. So we already have a set of, of organism values that we can't ignore or we ignore at our peril. And 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 so it's values all the way down. It's only and then to get back to what Andrew said, then we develop conceptualizations of value relations and value systems. All right, but the values are always there operating, and some of them what we call biological values. Some of them we call interpersonal values like care, nurturance, empathy, etc. Um, some of them are for larger values that emerge out of our embodied being for larger social groups like values of justice, hmm. fairness, um, kindness, you know, uh, selfishness, uh, altruism, things like that. Um, would you wait? Would you would you yeah. say just said that the it's not for me? I don't believe it's the values always exist. It's a phenomena always exists of which we later give the value we, okay, we give it but, a but yeah what i was maybe contesting there a little bit was mm -hmm. yeah I, I don't have any trouble saying the value they they don't exist in themselves they emerge out of interaction um but okay. we, we don't have to think them reflectively all Correct. the time if we had to we'd never get anything done mm -hmm. if we had to think here's a value that my heart keep beating all right. And that's a value for, for this. If that stops, I'm in a bad way as an organism. I don't have to. And if I had to think about that and conceptualize it and all and monitor it, I, I, I wouldn't exist because I couldn't monitor all the systems. So I don't have any problem saying, but it's not that the values are like they're an absolute, but they're the values of the patterns of organism environment interaction, given the kinds of organisms we are developing to be and the kinds of environments. 
So yeah, that's relativized how, that's values. It's helpful. It's, it's, you know, it's if a, you're not concerned with survival of the organism, then that's not a value. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's and helpful. you're going to take the consequences of that. Yeah, for me, it's a bit it's a bit semantical, and and that's why it's like when I hear value, I have a slight different mm-hmm. value towards it. And when you explain it that way, it it makes more sense. And yeah, I also I mean, find that and, I, and 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 some and look, there's all this good work on how values like we have bodily disgust reactions, and Paul Rosen has done all this work on on disgust, and then he tries to point out how. Um, how we have metaphors for disgust in the moral realm, you know, that was disgusting, et cetera. Um, and, and so with values that were operative for us as biological organisms get taken up into our sense of the meaning of moral acts, you know, and then they become reflectively, you know, sort of entertainable. Okay. Uh, you know, we can, we can think about them. We can, um, see what relations they have, what they portend by way of possible um, future experiences and that sort of thing. So being able to conceptualize them opens them up to a, a greater richness. But I want to say all these values have, have been determining the very character of my organic life, you know, and my social relations and my inter- my, my intimate interpersonal relations. They're all operating there. Um, I don't know. So I don't know if, if, you know, and then I'm saying, well, we we acquire the ability to criticize them, to reflect on their adequacy or to see what they might, uh, how they might be tweaked in this context for greater stability or meaning or growth or whatever, you know, whatever's the in, in play here. Um, and so I don't think we're on a completely separate track there, but um, it's all it's all there is no track. It, it would, all, yeah, there no would absolute. only be it, it's a kind of con, it's a continuity. Yes, it's, like, it's not, not a radical rupture where all of a sudden values have to be brought in from from outside somehow from outside of the circle of interactions. Um, they're already there, but but we're not maybe aware of how they're affecting us, you know, and so bringing them to critical awareness can be a very meaningful and constructive act. I mean, if we can't do that, we're bound to just be driven by our habitual, um, you know, patterns and the act and the values that they embed in them. I want to say, you know, this is, I would say so far, this is everything I hope for and more. And I'm really appreciating uh, you, your time, and also everything that has brought you to where you are today, like to really honor all the work you've done. I find this so relevant to our work. And it's funny when I talk to some body workers and they say, well, what do metaphors have to do? What have do they do with any of that? Yeah. Any, um, any, and, and I think it has everything to do with it. How, how are we structuring our world? Exactly. Uh, and, and our and sense so, of ourselves and our yes. relationships and the possibilities yes. for us. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's been a pleasure talking and to you and Nikki, because, um, you know, to see how the possible integrations, you know, and, and how the background and experiences that you have, um, you know, help me understand better, um, you know, what, where I need to look and um, maybe what some connections are that I hadn't seen before. Um, well, I'm so happy I've, to also I've enjoyed it. 
Yeah, I'm happy. I don't know if I know anyone in Eugene particular, but if I find some people around that, I'm happy to also connect with some you know, yeah, with other people. That, I, I'd be yeah. I'd, I'd enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. That would be yeah. cool. Well, I've appreciated that. First of all, I want to thank you for taking time and that we got to catch you before um, you headed into retirement. Congratulations yeah. <laughs> on that next. <laughs> no, retirement. Okay. Yeah. Do we ever retire, though? Is no, that I'm not. Kind of well, it depends Are we, on like, the person. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I mean, I think. I, I think this has been a very beautiful conversation, very enlightening. And I think it, I'm happy to really excited to share it with my movement um, community and even to clients, because I think I think there's so much in this that we have just gotten busy in our lives. It, and it's it's kind of an important talk, topic, but a forgotten topic. Mm-hmm. And I think this helps people understand the the meaning of who they are the meaning of their postures uh, yeah, meaning uh, of yes. their environment yes and uh-huh. um and and the, you know kind of going not to rehash it all but with andrew's question the way i've kind of felt with embodiment it's a continuum it's going back to our embodiment can be a reflection of our environment and our environment's constantly changing exactly and exactly. you know yeah. I can't say that I would be the most embodied person if I lost my child or if something traumatic happened to them. I would yes. definitely not yes. be embodied. Yes. But having had embodiment tools, I know I can connect into them so I don't hopefully, you know, that I don't come like totally discombobulated and that I can regain some sense of stability to be present for the other people in my life. And I mean, that's an extreme example to, you know, and then there's all these other, you know, micro environments that can, um, can throw us off kilter. And so again, because I really come from a place of really wanting to help people um, to not have shame or, to look, uh, yes, yes, you know, mm-hmm. that they've been doing something wrong their whole life and how come that happened and everything. Mm-hmm. It's just things happen. And yeah. sometimes we don't understand the meaning in that moment when we're trying to find correction, but there is some meaning. And, and, I, and, and, um, and I hope this is that you put your finger on the, the human moment and importance mm-hmm. of what could be thought of as a bunch of you know, academic research and, you know, all this, I think it really does bear directly on who we are mm-hmm. and what's possible for us. That That's that's what's exciting and meaningful. Um, you know, I, a philosophy that doesn't engage you where you're at and help you um, get, you know, have some some degree of wisdom about how to negotiate your, you know, your fraught situations what good is it? You know, so it's a pleasure to be able to talk with you and see, you know, all the layers where this is, you know, in play in some in in some way. Yeah. And I want to share one small thing I think you might enjoy, Mark, uh, when you're talking about uh, uh, humanity as a family. Yes. Um, the the Chinese word for family is Jaren, 
which means Ja is home, Ren is people, Ren home is people. people, Ren is people, yeah, home oh, people. Oh, that's great. Yes. And 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 so I kind of think about well, how do we define our home? Is our you know? And so yes. that 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 metaphor lines up really well with that. For yeah. Me. yeah. Yeah. So. And and I mean, there's a there's a yeah. We'll go, I, I won't go on. We're running out of time, but I, yeah. I appreciate that. That's cool. Yeah. Um, well, Ennis, thank you for your time. Um, sure. Perhaps whether you retire or not, we'll have another further call at some point in the future because I've enjoyed it. That will be um, fun. Yeah. Be fun. There's yeah. so much well, we didn't even touch on. So, oh, oh yeah. that's the thing. Anyway. It's such a, it's such a rich topic. The good news is that people listening can go out and buy your books and they can get more information <laughs> okay. there. Um, no, yes, I, I realize, got some right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got some right here. And special with some snake oil too. If, yeah, yeah. No, but I, I mean, I, I, I you know, uh, not to make you too <laughs> modest, but but I really, I've said this to many people, metaphors, I, I really think metaphors we live by should be a book that all uh, all body workers read uh, because it is so, it's so foundational to, to about the experience of, of the person and how they might be relating with the world. It, it's, yeah, that, it's, well, thank you. That, I, I appreciate that. You're saying that. That's kind yeah. of that. Yeah. Well, so, in uh, our conversation, I ordered the philosophy and flesh, and I really look forward to that. Oh, oh, boy. Four hundred pages. So <laughs> no, I'm not finished. Uh, yeah. Maybe you'll, <laughs> I'm you'll find some. <laughs> you'll, you'll find you'll maybe you'll find something in, in, in that mass of. Uh, well, I have to tell you, we we wanted to put in one place all the stuff we knew about embodiment and philosophy and psychology you know, at that time in 1999. And so it made for a kind of, we wanted to show people that we weren't just waving our hands and using words, you know, and, and flapping our gums, but that there was, you know, it could reveal how we understand mind, how we understand morality, how we understand the self. There's a whole chapter on this metaphors mm. for the self, mm. metaphors for morality and such. And, and we were hoping to put all that together so maybe people can find some part that relates directly to, to something they care about. Anyway, Super. thank you. Thank you. All right, Mark. Well, wish you a good okay. day out there. Thanks again. Yep. Bye now. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Find out more about Mark at blogs.uoregon.edu slash markj. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps other people find us, and we greatly appreciate your support. Look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at Touching Into Presence.